everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to part two of this bumper end of year Christmas Q&A podcast. If you haven't already listened to part one, then you might want to, although you can listen to them in any order really, um, because you know we've divided it up into sections. So in part one we did self-defence, training and general karate. In this part we're going to look at Katrin Bunkai, uh, stances and techniques, uh, weapons and the miscellaneous questions as well. Uh, just as in part one we do have a few spoof adverts and a warning that there's some very, very, very mild uh, language in them. So if you're listening with young children in earshot, uh, you might want to put the headphones in just to err on the side of caution. So yeah, I hope you enjoy part one and let's begin part two with a word from our sponsor. Tired of sparring not going the way you planned? Want to look like a super skilled martial artist but don't want to put in all those hours in the dojo? Then hire one of our Uber Ukis. Whereas a normal Uki will only help you learn, practice and teach individual specific techniques, our Ukis will do absolutely none of that. Do a throw totally wrong and they will leap higher than a hyperactive gymnast on an electrified trampoline. If you extend your arm in the general direction, they will drop to the floor with all the theatrics of an attention-seeking break dancer in the midst of a violent seizure. Submission's not working out? Then try our Uberuki, who will tap faster than a woodpecker on steroids. Our Uberukis are guaranteed responders to all kinds of martial bullshit. Impress your friends with your no-touch knockouts. In the unlikely event that Uberuki fails to deliver, they will publicly take full responsibility and loudly thank you for not doing the technique properly and hence saving their lives as a result of their inability to safely go with the technique. Our Uberukis have trained for years so you don't have to. Rent Uberuki for your next public display now! So we now move on to the Katra and Bunkai questions and the first one is from Tony Smith. He said, there are lots of different bunkai that have been thought of for the same kata, some good and some not so good. Do you think it is a good idea to practice all of the good ones or choose the one that suits you best and drill that solely? So my, my own view is that any given group should have bunkai for the kata that they practice that they regard as being the bunkai. Um, I, I think that over the last kind of you know, 20 years or so, we've all analysed the kata sufficiently, that there is enough good bunkai out there for any given group to go, right, sequence A, this is the drill we do, sequence B, this is the drill we do, and you have that as what I would call your primary bunkai. So that's the one that is drilled for the whole group, not just the individuals, for the whole group. Now, what we have when we hit brown belt is the students are encouraged to look at secondary bunkai, which means I want them to look at the cat that they've already practiced and have already drilled bunkai drills for and say, okay, I've told you what the move is and that's what it's been for us. Now, you tell me what else you think it could be. And the reason I have that in there is it gets people to second guess me, which is obviously always important. It also means that they may decide, oh, I think Ian's got this wrong. You know, I think this sequence, although I see how Ian interprets it and I see the logical uh, progressions of the drills, I prefer this take, you know, so their karate will be different from my karate. As I said before, I always think if Ian Rue ever exists, I've fundamentally failed in my objective. You know, I... I I believe that karate should uh, progress from generation to generation, and I want to hopefully play a small uh, small part in that. So my own view is practice the good one that works for you. And if you're part of a group, that group should have the good ones that suit them. You know, Each individual kata has specific drills and bunkai for every specific sequence. Not 10 or 20 or even 3. It's got this is the application for this sequence. 
And then what you do from there is you can say, okay, now having learned all those, now what else can it be? Look at the secondary bunk guy. And that's the model that we use. And, you know, personally, we found that to be uh, the most effective one for us. So the next question is from Peter Jones. He says, what are your views on the creation of new kata? I appreciate someone had to create them at some point, and I know you see no reason to do this yourself as you feel that the existing kata do a perfectly good job for your needs, but I've also seen you encourage people to create their own kata for their own unique needs, such as disability. Do you envisage that one day you'll create a kata to cover the collective teachings of Abenethi, just as there are kata for Kashanku and Chinto? We are, after all, transcending the teachings of the past masters. Uh, so my own view, I have no problem with people creating new kata. There was not something unique about the past masters that made them like demigods or inherently superior to people today. There's no reason at all why people can't create new kata. And I'm a grand believer in encouraging people to create kata that suit their needs. You know, And again, you know, I've been chatting with a friend of mine who's in a wheelchair. Um, so I said to him, one of the things that he should look to do is, is create a kata that fits the self-defense techniques he would use, you know, like breaking grips when people grab the chair and that kind of stuff. So yeah, no problem with that. You know, I, and I have created a, a kata for my own practice recently based on Motobu's 12 uh, two-person drills. I like those drills, or at least I like my interpretation of those drills. So I, I made a little kata for myself, never taught it to anybody at this point. It's just for my own personal practice. So when I'm doing all my other kata, I can do, you know, which are my 12 steps kata, which runs through uh, Motobu's uh, drills. But I, I don't see it as being something I, I would teach uh, to anyone else. As, re as regards the co collective teachings of myself, uh, that's not really the way it works as well. You know, like, for example, Kishanku Kata was made by Tode Sakagawa, who was a student of Kishanku's. And the same is said of Chinto as well. It was a student of Chinto that created the Kata, not Chinto himself. So if anybody ever wanted to create a Kata for the things that I've done, then that would be up to them. But I don't feel the need to do it because, as I say, I feel that the existing Kata we have... Uh, I think they're logical, I think they're well-structured, they give me and mine all we need, so I'd just be reinventing the wheel. You know, if I was to create um, a kata of, of my own to encapsulate the things we practice, well, the things we practice come from the traditional kata, so I'm just reinventing it. It would be the, you know, the Pinans and Nahanchi and Kishanku and Chinto and Cezanne and all the kata we practice anyway, just kind of mixed together from, you know, my own per personal preferences. So, yeah, I have no problem with anyone else creating kata. I, if people ever wanted to create a kata from my teachings, that's up to them. It wouldn't be something I would endorse. <laughs> Um, I, I think the traditional kata are fine for my needs, the, 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 the grand, um, but creating kata for your own personal practice, I have no problem with that. And if people feel, feel they've created a kata that uh, helps them in teaching as well, then no problem with that too. So for uh, very pro creation of new kata, not something I want to do though, simply because I don't feel it gives me anything I haven't already got. The next question we've got is from Torsten Rocker, and he says, I want to know your opinion. Uh, Shotokan, as we know it today, is it more Zato or Moritosu? So obviously they were the two main instructors of Gichin Funakoshi, and I think we can let Funakoshi answer that one. So uh, in Funakoshi's writings, he said that uh, Mabuni, the founder of Shitoru, was uh, the passer-on of the Itosu legacy. 
whereas he felt himself was the passer-on of the Azato legacy. So obviously a lot of the kata that are in Shotokan are ones that are said to be created by Itosu, and we don't know whether Azato practiced them or not himself. Uh, we also, you know, this thing said, you know, how, how true they are, I don't know, but, you know, it's like that Azato uh, liked side-kicking, so that's why in the Shotokan katas they often replace the, the front kicks with the, the side kicks. So, you know, there's an Azato influence there. Uh, I, I, I think... You know, seeing as we can't see a Zato move and we don't know what Kateri did, uh, I think we can be safe to say that Shotokan, as we do it today, is more a Zato, simply because that's what Funakoshi himself said. So the next question is from John Jepson. He says, why is Bunkai so widely misunderstood and misrepresented by instructors? Lots of reasons for that. Historically, uh, the main one is that Bunkai stopped being taught. So as karate moved from Okinawa to Japan, uh, Japan at the time is going through a lot of changes. Uh, martial arts are regarded as being old-fashioned, violent, not something that any you know, good, upstanding member of Japanese society would want anything to do with. And Kano, uh, the founder of judo, uh, was the genius who went, okay, yeah, it's not about defeating another samurai on a battlefield. Um, I've created this uh, new art called judo based on my uh, previous practice in two schools of jiu-jitsu. And this is about character development and strong minds and strong bodies. And karate just basically saw that that was popular and ripped it off. We put dough on the end. We started wearing judo suits. We used ippons and wazaris in competitions. You know, we stole judo's uh, grading system. You know, we just wholesale ripped it off. Uh, and as a result of that, karate is now being taught as a form of physical education, a, a, a form of personal challenge. So the, the bunkai is not really practiced. Now, while it's not been really practiced, what happens within these universities, you've got lots of young men who want to you know, beat each other up. So they start fighting each other, and they start to look at the kata from that perspective. So then you develop this weird way of looking at kata, which doesn't work where you have people doing you know formal karate attacks and trying to make it work that way whereas we know kata bunkai was designed for self-defense not for out fighting another karateka in a formally arranged and consensual duel so that is what spread uh, now as a result of that what some people have done is of course they go well that's what we i was taught therefore that is right i will stick with that forever so there, there are now some instructors who are just stuck in their ways basically who don't really know the history well uh, and are stuck in this strange historical anomaly that generated you know began around the like mid 1920s and then you know 1940s and then spread to the world from there uh, and, and then they're kind of stuck in that so some mainly because they're you know they're invested in it but i think things are changing i think that more and more people are aware that you know katabunka is not defending against eight karateka who conveniently oizuki you along the compass points in sequence uh, that that's not correct. You know, there's lots of good people sharing lots of good material. You know, you look on the internet, look on YouTube, loads of good stuff out there. So hopefully that will change. But, but I think the reason it's so widely misunderstood and misrepresented is simply because that was uh, an historical thing that happened. That's how it got spread. And some people are very invested in that version and are therefore reluctant to look at any alternatives. So the next question is from David Corbett Everidge, and he says, if you can only practice one kata for the rest of your life, what would it be? Well, it'd be Nahanshi. Uh, Nahanshi Shodan to some. Uh, simply because I, I love that form. I, I, I have a, a, a romantic attachment to it, can we say? When I injured my knee, I dislocated my knee, and I couldn't do uh, any other kata 
for about a year. Any time I pivoted, my knee would just pop. Uh, the, of course, the handshake has no pivots in it. And if I missed out the return and wave kicks and did it on the spot, I could do that kata. So for a year, when all the other katas abandoned me, Nahanshi was the one that stuck by me. Of course, I travel a lot as well, so I often find myself in hotel rooms and things like that. Well, again, Nahanshi's a, my travel kata. I can do it anywhere. And I think in terms of it, uh, its applicability for close-range combat, it's just it's, it's brilliant. It's just so deep. So Utsuka, the founder of Wadaru, said there was something profoundly deep about that kata, and it would take more than a lifetime to master. So, you know, I agree. You know, if we could only do one, uh, definitely Nahanshi. Next question is from Chris Rose. He says, how do you go about researching a lesser-known kata and differentiate between what was there originally and what has been added on or modified? My reason for this is, is I want to formulate a plan of Bunkai for Matsumura Rohai. I've compared my version to other skills versions and there are some huge differences. I'm wanting to know if I'm building a blueprint worthy of the old masters or if I'm trying to force things to work that weren't there originally. Spinning kicks and whatnot. I realise that in the end, as long as what I've done is functional and realistic it doesn't matter but i want to know how you go about it so it's a good question that and raises a couple of things so let's the first one is we need to do away with the idea that there was originally one pure version of the kata and all of the deviations from that original perfect pure kata are abominations and martial blasphemies that need to be sought out and expunged you know it wasn't unheard of for a master to teach a kata uh, one way and then 10 years later he's teaching it to his students in a different way now has he got worse in those 10 years or has he changed things because he believes them to be better so and, and also we know that you know there's strong evidence that people would teach kata or practice them differently based on you know who they were and what their skills were so you see things where you know you get cutters coming from the same source but there's little variations added in you know probably because you know different students prefer different things or are built differently or have different attributes and you know that's fine too so we haven't got one pure version that we're trying to get back to so what we're really trying to say is how do we know what changes have been added in a combative and how do we differentiate those from the non-combative? So you do get changes made to kata for aesthetic purposes, um, you know, how it looks, or athletic training purposes too, you know, stances made deeper, kicks made higher, that kind of stuff. Now, if we are using the kata as a form of artistic expression, no problem really if you're doing it in an artistic way. If you are doing the kata as a form of physical exercise, so doing the high kicks and the low stances and all that kind of stuff, you know, fine you know but if we're doing it combatively then obviously those things are problematic because just because it looks nice or just because it's you know athletically demanding doesn't mean that it's functional so it's weeding out the functional from the non-functional one thing that's always useful as well is to look at how different styles uh, do the kata because sometimes just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong sometimes you get alternate expressions of core common principles and it gives you new insights so i always use you know that well-worn parable of the blind men and the elephant you know so one touches its side and thinks an elephant's like a wall one touches its leg thinks an elephant's like a tree one touches its trunk and thinks an elephant's like a snake and so on and so forth right and the final guy goes all the way around the elephant and goes i get it an elephant's like an elephant so i i think looking at 
how other styles do the kata gives you a different perspective on the version of the kata that you do. Now, it's not about who does it right or wrong, because you can get two different versions that are both right. They're just alternate expressions of common principles. So, so looking at what other styles do can, can be useful. Now, if you suddenly see that, you know, nine out of ten of the, the kata that you see don't have a spinning kick at, at this point, and yours suddenly does, it's a surefire indication, okay, that is being added in. It's not a variation on a common movement, it's an addition. And, and then you have to say, well, is that addition combative or not? You know, analyze the bunkai, and, and do, is there a combative purpose on there? So with things like spinning kicks, you can be pretty confident it's been added in because somebody thought it looked cool or for the athletic challenge of it. So we can remove that. We can just say, okay, I'm taking that out. That, that's something that's been added into the kata from a functional point of view that shouldn't have been there. You know, and and it's, it's okay to do that too. Just because you were taught a kata a given way doesn't mean you have to do that that way forevermore. The, the key thing is, you know, as Chris quite rightly says in his question, is it just needs to be functional and realistic for the, the group. The kata needs to serve its purpose. If it's helping people... Uh, to you know, formulate the training, to give them a good supplementary form of solo training. Um, it, it, it's pro pro providing to be uh, a good summary of core drills within the system as that given group practices it. it. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's fulfilling the traditional requirement of kata. Whether other groups do the kata the same way is an irrelevance, just like it was in the past. Again, to quote Funakoshi, Funakoshi said, Gichi Funakoshi, there are not now, nor have there ever been, any f uh, hard and fast ways uh, regarding the performance of kata. It is therefore not surprising that the katas have a varied across time and even from instructor to instructor you know this is what funakoshi says so we don't need to seek the one pure version of the kata um, it's good to look at what the other styles do from the acceptance that all of the styles are correct look for the anomalies that you can say yeah that's not you know a different throw or a different way of applying the same lock it's not a different expression of common principles that's a radical departure from what the other versions are doing and Based on your bunkai analysis, I believe that departure to be non-combative. Then you can remove that part from the, the, the kata. No, you, you know, if you're doing it combatively and you're doing it purely combatively, you can remove those things. Um, yeah, so I hope that's of some use, Chris. It's a good question, that, because there's lots of different elements to it. But I hope that um, brief kind of summation of some of the key points is of, uh, of some value to you. Next question is from Matt. Uh, Matt doesn't uh, give his surname, but Matt knows who he is, and that's all that matters. He says, do I think there are impractical kata, i.e. kata devised by people with impractical self-defense techniques in mind? There are more than a few modern kata that sprung up in the 20th century, which is when karate was beginning down the path of impracticality. A good question, that, and there's a few interesting uh, avenues we can go with that one. So, just obviously, there are impractical kata around today. You get ones, modern kata, where they've got crazy low stances, backflips in them flamboyant kicking combinations you know so we can write those off you know if we're talking about the cutters that are a bit older than that i think the tenno cutter would fall into that category so for those who don't know those there's the tenno cutter which were designed by funakoshi sun jigo funakoshi and there's tenno cutter ura which are the two person drills to go with it that's all block kick punch from a distance stuff it's all very 3k so those cutter would definitely fall into the impractical cutter uh, category and they are of that time period as well but that's not to say that all of the kata of that time period would be impractical so if you think of things like uh, the gekisai katas that are practiced in gojiru they're relatively modern katas you know we're talking like 1940s somewhere around there 
so they're fairly modern, but they are definitely functional kata, you know. Um, and also, uh, the, the Gekisai's uh, were originally, they were a joint project between uh, a Miyagi and Nagamimi, you know, and they made the, the Fukugata. And in Matsubayashiru, they still practice them both. So in Matsubayashiru, uh, Fukukata ni is what Gojuru people know as Gekisai Daiichi. Now, that's a functional kata. Now, there's also uh, Fukukata Ich, the first one. That's lots of lower blocks, you know, Gdambarais, you're going to use that term, uh, and then lunging punches. So it, it's not a functional kata, that one. However, I don't know if you can argue it's impractical, because I don't think it's designed to be directly combative. I think it's designed to teach kata. So you see that with, you know, like the first course katas in Shotokan. And if you look in the book uh, Karate Do Taikan, there's a whole series in there of basic katas that's devised, which are nothing but the basic, like, uki motions. Uh, you know, uh, Agiyuki, Gyanbarai, Sotoki, Uchiki, Gakazuki, Oizuki, that kind of stuff. So, so they're not designed really... Oh, because those movements have combative functions, but the kata is not designed to give combative lessons. Uh, what it's designed to do is get people used to the kind of turns and twists they see in kata. So it's a kata designed to get people to learn kata. Well, if it achieves that goal, is it impractical or not? It's non-combative. But if its goal is to you know, be as basic as possible to help people learn kata, you know, it, when I, in my kids' class we have a kata called kion kata, which is the, the adults never learn it. Uh, but it, it, that again is just very basic techniques, getting the children used to our kata work. So when I come to teach them the pinan katas, which do have combative function, uh, they find it easier easier to do. So uh, yes, there are definitely impractical kata. The tenno kata would definitely fall into that category. Uh, there are there are also kata that don't have combative function. Uh, like Fukukata Ich, the first course kata, the katas we see in uh, uh, Karate Do Taikan, but we can't really argue they're impractical because they're kata designed to help people learn kata, to make it as basic as possible. So they achieve the goal in that way, so we can say they're non-combative, but whether that makes them impractical or not, you know, that depends on your definition of, uh, of practical, I guess. Yeah, good question, that, Matt. It's a, an interesting one. <laughs> Justin Lundy asks, uh, does any kata come to mind where a roundhouse kick may be better utilised in the application than the more traditional kicks seen in kata? So just, just talk about roundhouse kick uh, for, for a moment. If you look at uh, Funakoshi's first book, it, it lists a number of leg techniques. Roundhouse kick is not included in there. If you look at the kicks that Funakoshi is presenting originally, he talks about gripping and stomping the thighs, kicking knees, stamping on feet. You know, it's all that close-range practical kicking. Uh, in Funa, uh, when Funakoshi came to write Karate Do Kyohan, you know, in the 1930s, roundhouse kick's still not there. It doesn't really appear until the 1950s kind of reprint of that book that when roundhouse kick comes in. So I think roundhouse kick is a technique that's great for when we fight each other. It's great when we've got that little bit of distance. But when we're clinched up and on top of one another, it doesn't really have much of a role to play. The, the other ones are better suited to kicking shins and knees and stamping on feet at that distance. Uh, love roundhouse kick. It is the king of kicks when it comes to fighting, but it's, it's got little application when it comes to self-defense. 
uh, it can be used when you kind of when you've got that bit of space. Normally, when you've given them a good headshot, they're rocked a little bit. You back up slightly, land that thigh out roundhouse. You know, the guy can barely stand up. You can start running. He can't run after you. So there, it could be used. You know, as part of your escape uh, strategies. But then again, any of the other kicks could too. You know, you've, you you. It stamps the thighs that Funakoshi recommends and stuff, or Mayagari's to the thighs. So when it comes to the kicks in kata, they work well within that self-defense context because that's what they're all about. So I can't think of any example where a roundhouse kick would be better dropped into the kata than the kicks that are there already because it's, it's a different thing. If you were to make a fighting kata, you know, a, a kata that covered uh, the techniques we'd use in mutual exchanges, then roundhouse kicks should be there regular and often. But th- there's a reason why it doesn't appear much in, in the kata, and that's because it has a limited role to play in close-range combat. So the next question is from Paul Morey. He says, uh, my question is, some clubs and associations alter the way they do some kata, uh, it, usually to make them more visually pleasing for competitions. Do you, or have you ever, altered the way you perform any kata? Uh, and if so, what was the reason for these changes? I, I've never altered any of the kata uh, that I was taught. And, and that is because th- they serve my functions uh, as they were taught. Um, as, I, as I mentioned you know, earlier, we, we never done the exaggerated stances, the really long pauses, the super high kicks. It was just never how we did the kata in the way I was, I was taught them. Now, I, when I competed, I just did the kata the way that I'd been taught to do them. And I, you know, I had a moderate degree of success in kata competition as well, but I just did the kata exactly as I was taught. It. I didn't alter them. Now, of that that time, you know, I later went on to, to judge kata, and we were told as kata judges, and I was, you know, I was a high-level kata judge, I was a tatami chief at national level, uh, we were told that uh, if the kata is performed in a way that obscures the bunkai, or is not in line with traditional concepts, it should be marked down. So if they do overly long dramatic pauses, mark it down. If they have really super deep stances, mark it down. If they kick in head height, when the, the functionally it should be knee height, mark them down. You know, and, and, and that is what we were taught to do, and that is what we did. So you could win competitions, providing you had competent referees, uh, with traditional uh, good quality kata. Now, it seems to my uneducated eyes, and I've been out the loop for a long time on that now, but it seems that that's drifted. We do see these, you know, dramatic pauses and geese slapping to make, you know, the noises, you know, hands hikate slapping against the side of the body as they come in. Uh, we do see the, you know, exaggerated stances, the exaggerated breathings, the, the exaggerated pauses. So people competing today may need to bring those things in. Um, and I know some groups who have two ways they do the kata. They have, this is the competition way, and this is the kind of real functional traditional way. Um, sad that that's happened, but there you go. Um, so, yeah, but in my case, though, no, never altered any of the katas I've practiced because I've never felt the need to. Functionally, they serve my purpose. Uh, when I was uh, competing in kata, I did the kata the way I was taught, and, you know, I won not placed on that basis. So, never, never had to change them. And the final question we have is from Terry Monksfield. He goes, it is said that the karate that Funakoshi brought to Japan was children's karate and uh, when it was taught to adults. Most practical karate teachers want adult students and nearly all the instructional videos online, for example, uh, YouTube, involve adults. Would instructional practical application videos showing how to teach practical karate to children be something you would be willing to produce? That's a really good idea. I'm not sure I'm the best person to do that. As I know people who teach children better than me, I have a, um, a podcast coming up with uh, 
uh, an interview I did a little while ago now with Mike Turbitt, who's a fantastic teacher of children, and, and we talk in depth about the way that children should uh, should be taught. And may, maybe someone like Mike would be the right person to do that. Uh, for, 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 for me, uh, obviously, most of my students, the vast majority are adults, because um, I've had a policy of it being that way for a long time. Uh, within the last 12 months, I've started te- teaching children again, which you know, massively enjoy. I forgot how much fun that was. Uh, I have a dozen students who are children and the syllabus I've produced for them is basically just designed to get them ready to teach the adult stuff to them when they're old enough. So the kids are having fun, it's keeping them fit and healthy, uh, they're learning new skills, they're learning how to move and then when they hit the kind of teens, they're adults, I can then move them across to the adult classes where they have all those core skills. They understand distancing, they understand timing, they've got basic gripping skills. I haven't taught them you know, neck cranks, scenario drills, um, throat hits, um, you know, violent pad drills, nothing like that. They haven't done anything along those lines, but they've got the core skills that I can, that I can then work with. So that's what I think we should be doing with the children, you know, do children's martial arts for children, but do it in such a way that it will progress. It's worth saying that that seems to be Itosu's original aim as well. If you read Itosu's 10 precepts, he talks about teaching karate to children so we'll produce men capable of defeating many opponents, he says. You know, so the idea of the children's karate was it was supposed to eventually lead into the adults' karate. So, you know, I think we can do that, you know, teaching children basic gripping skills, uh, movement skills, basic striking skills, blocking skills, escape skills, teaching them the kata, um, a a correct movement. These are all things that can be taught to children and will help them uh, develop uh, into practical adult uh, practitioners, you know, if, if they stick with it for that long. Ever wondered why the Bubishi seems so weird and difficult to understand? Well, wonder no more. Newly discovered missing pages of the Bubishi will solve all your historical karate problems. Found in a cave on the coast of Okinawa, this unbelievable manuscript contains all new information that fills in the gaps on everything from karate's roots in pancreation, to karate's roots in yoga, to karate's roots in the UFC. Translated by Mario McKenna, retranslated back into Chinese, then translated again by Patrick McCarthy, you literally can't afford not to buy this one-of-a-kind document. Don't miss your chance to own this piece of history. Order today. To order the Bubishi Volume 2 for just 90 payments of $99.99, call 1-800-282-4742. That's 1-800-BUBISHI2. Call now. So in this section, we'll be looking at questions around stances and technique. Uh, so the first one is from Chakal via Twitter, and she's asking for a friend, you know, just to explain uh, the role of stances in kata. There's a few online uh, videos I've done on that, and there's a podcast called My Stance on Stances. But uh, briefly, the primary job of stance is to get body weight into technique. It's a snapshot of movement. It's saying you need to move to this position or through this position in order to get body weight in, into this particular technique. Now, of course, in application, we wouldn't lock or freeze frame on the stance. We would flow through that position. And this is reflected in Funakoshi's precepts where he said, um, beginners use stances, advanced students use natural postures. Now, that doesn't mean that the advanced student forgets about stances and reverts to natural postures. It means that the stances become the natural postures of the advanced student. They've learned how to move body weight efficiently, so they move through these stances. And the reason we know that that's what Funakoshi was referring to is uh, the the book Karate Do uh, Taikan, which was compiled by Genwa Nakasone. Uh, in that book, uh, Nakasone expanded on Funakoshi's principles and had his explanations of them endorsed by Funakoshi. 
So when, on that one, when talking about stance, he has this lovely line where he says, uh, karate has many stances, it also has none. So he goes on to say that, you know, if you freeze frame the movement and say, you know, you need to be at this point, at this point, uh, therefore you have a stance. But in application, it's fluid movement. So as I, you know, I joke with my students all the time, I say there's only two things still in a fight, unconscious people and people who are about to be unconscious, you know. So you need constant movement in, uh, when, when we're fighting. So we're moving through those stances fluidly, and the role of the stance is to teach us how to get body weight into that specific technique. Uh, the secondary role of stance that we sometimes see is legs get in the way of the enemy's legs. So, you know, they can help with certain throws and takedowns, okay? But the primary role of stance uh, is to ensure the effective transfer of body weight. So the next question is from Heather Harris, and she'd like me to uh, explain, uh, beginning with the basic punch and breaking it as far as I can go, what the hips should be doing on, on the punch. Uh, so obviously, you know, different styles do things different ways, you know, and, and I've been taught a, a number of different ways to generate power, and obviously I've settled on the one that I have found to be the most effective, by a considerable margin, actually. So the first thing is, if it's tactically appropriate, because, you know, it may, may not be, depends on the position you're in, but if it's tactically appropriate, the pivot point should not be the center of the hip. So what we have is we have one side of the hip going forwards with one side of the hip coming backwards. Uh, the reason for that is it means that half your body weight is going in the, the wrong direction. So we should rotate from the side of the hip. So think of like a door hinge. So you know, you're pivoting around there. So all of the body weight is going in the direction of the technique. Now, now sometimes, you know, if, if you were bent forwards or your feet were in a different position, you can't always do that. But, but all things been equal, the, the pivot point should be the side of the hip, not the center. That's a common bit. In terms of looking at kind of like the, the basic punch and, and, and how it moves from there, the, the power kind of almost like spirals through through the body. So but before we get into how that works, just a, a, a key thing to know about our physiology is, I mean, there's two things that human beings do better than any other creature on this planet. And the, the first one is think. Obviously, we're the most intelligent creatures on this earth. And the other one, it may not seem it sometimes, but officially we are. <laughs> and, then, and then the other one is that we uh, we throw better than any other creature. So, you know, human beings can you know, throw 80, 90, over 100 miles an hour, some of us, with accuracy as well. You know, a chimpanzee can throw at about 20, 25. You know, it's, it, 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 we, are, we are excellent throwers. We have low shoulders. We, we have an alignment, a muscular and structural alignment that, that permits throwing. Uh, and we have a, a, a musculature that is good for throwing. Now, this is why, partly why we, we became kings of this planet is, is because we could throw accurately. Can't outfight that thing, can't outrun it, but we can throw spears at it from a long distance, right? And I don't think it's a coincidence when we're talking about punches, we use the term throw punches. So if, if you know, if two guys get into a fight, so oh, the next thing I know, they were throwing punches at one another. No one ever says, oh, and the next thing I know, they were thrusting punches at one another. You know, building down our languages and understanding almost that, that the way we generate most power with our physiology is, is something akin to a throwing action. So if you think of like, um, uh, like if you were to throw a ball, the way it'll generally move is your feet will move in the direction first, then your hip starts to move, the body starts to talk, the hand is left back, so the muscles become stretched. The muscles then explosively contract. It's all the weights thrown forwards, and the object in your hand is released. That's how we throw most effectively. Now, now, obviously, tactically, we can't make a punch as big as a throw. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be you know, seen coming a mile off. So we need to condense that movement, but we should still generally use the, the physiology associated with throwing. 
So what I mean by that is we, we pivot from the hip, ideally from the side, and as we start to move, the hand doesn't move. Now, now here we're talking a matter of inches, right? But the body has started to rotate, and the hand has not rotated yet. What this do, does is it stretches the muscle. Now, uh, now, like anything, once it's stretched, it wants to return to the normal size, and our muscles do that very well. Now, as that natural stretch reflex kicks in, at that point, we, we contract it at that same time. So we're not just getting the strength of the contraction, we're getting the we're getting it from the stretch so the muscle naturally wants to contract and then we're adding our contraction to it as we whip those hips forward that's when we'll get maximum mass into the technique and, and maximum power now obviously i know it's a bit difficult to describe in a podcast but i hope that you you know you're, you're following this uh, sometimes people go yeah but if you move the hips first won't you see that you're punching it the second thing is p- people don't stand in front of each other like you know cowboys ready to quick on the draw that's not how fight works this is you know loads of movement going on all the time and a subtle little movement from the hips is not going to be ah saw what you did there i can get out of the way of the punch it's so close and so frantic that this 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 movement will it, it goes unseen it, it, it it's, it's not there it's, it's almost imperceptible to the eyes anyway uh, the other thing is people go, well, if you're moving the hips before the hand, doesn't it slow it down? And the answer is no, because although the hips move slightly before the hand does, when the hand does start to move, because of the uh, the stretching and contraction of the muscles, it shoots forwards at far greater speed. So therefore, it, although it started later, it hits the target sooner, because it moves forwards with greater velocity and greater mass behind it. So um, so that would be the basics of it. And the, the other thing is uh, that I, I just want to add to this is that the, there is a widespread misunderstanding uh, and, and this is because technique is just taught so badly generally that, that that mass physical size is the primary thing that constitutes how powerful a punch will be no so you hear that a lot you know oh, big guys can hit hard uh, small guys should just try and be quick nonsense a small guy can be powerful and fast a big guy can be powerful and fast now obviously if you have more body weight you have more body weight to get into the technique right but it's not the body weight you've innately got it's the body weight that you can get moving so I've told this story before about a friend of mine, a bodybuilder, a huge guy, huge. And he said to me one time, he said, I, I want to do some uh, cardio, you know, burn a bit of fat off. I get bored walking and, you know, running and stuff. I've bought myself a punch bag. Can you come around and show me some routines to do on the bag? Yeah, no problem. Next time I'm around his house, I say, do you want to go in the, you know, your garage? I'll show you the punch bag stuff. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I can't wait till this monster hits this bag. This is going to be amazing. He could barely make it swing. And the reason for that was it's all arm. He's, you know, there's plenty of mass there, loads of mass, right? But he was hitting with a tenth of the power I can hit with, right? You know, d- despite the fact that I was half his size. And, and the reason for that is, is because I'm using my body mass effectively and he isn't. I also think of training partners and teachers I've got who are small guys. And, and the power that they can generate is massive. Not because they, they have a lot of mass per se. It's because they can get what mass they have behind the technique effectively, Okay, so small guys can hit with massive force. It's technique that generates power. It, it's not physical, uh, the physical size of you. If, it, if physical size is the main differentiating factor between how hard people are punching in your dojo, I would suggest that punching is not being well taught. Right? Because in, in my dojo, some of the hardest hitters are some of the smallest people because they have the, the, the best technique. It's technique that generates it. So, uh, Difficult to explain uh, in words, Heather, you know, without being there. To, to show you, but I hope that's of some use and gives you some uh, some things to think about. So the next question is from Mike Jordan. It's a related question. 
He says, I know you're a big fan of Nahanshi Kata. He says, I was originally taught the Kata to be formed uh, uh, in Nahanshi stance, basically Shikadachi with the feet parallel to each other. Uh, no one has been able to satisfactorily explain the reason for the stance, but I've been told it can be bad for the knees. Uh, consequently, I no longer teach my students to use that stance when performing the Kata and revert to Shikadachi. Could you please let me know your thoughts on this subject? So... As I've been taught things, there is a difference between uh, Kibidachi, where the feet are parallel, uh, and Nahanshi, where the feet are slightly in. So that the knees are pointing slightly inwards and the feet are slightly inwards. And, and again, difficult to describe. Because I say inwards, people are probably visualizing different things. But I, I want to make clear, it's, it's nothing unnatural. It's nothing uh, where, where force has been applied or anything like that. It's just having the feet very slightly inwards. Now, the advantage of doing that when you're training that cutter is the fact that the foot is pointing in encourages the hip to move in the same direction as the foot. So if you turn your foot out into shikadachi, which is a good sense for dropping weight, but if you've got the foot out, then you can't turn the hip as far in because your own thigh stops it, you know, the hip joint stops it. Having the other foot pointing in, so, you know, for those that know in a hanchi stance, both feet are in slightly and uh, the feet are in line, means you can't overturn, so you can't over-rotate. So th this is why we teach this stance to our beginners, because it's a great stance to learn to get that twitch from the hips, to get that, that explosive dynamic I was talking talking about earlier so uh, for, for me uh, because of its key use in power generation I wouldn't switch to doing Nahanshi Kata from Shikadachi uh, because with the feet being out I lose that power generation element that I think is key to what the Kata is trying to teach I like having the feet slightly inwards uh, where I agree with Mike is that uh, Kibadachi which is when the feet are parallel uh, can be injurious to the knees so it's not something I would do uh, the key thing is that the feet and the knees should be in line right for, for knee health so when we're dropping body weight downwards Shikadachi knees out feet out uh, Nahanshi Dachi, uh, feet in slightly, knees in slightly, but still in line. The one to avoid is when we've got the feet pointing straight forwards, but the knees are pushed out. Uh, that one can be uh, painful, you know, in the, in the long term to the knees. So, uh, yeah, I hope that gives, again, these, you know, as always with everything, these are my thoughts. You know, people are free to disagree, and there's, you know, as with all things, there's other ways to approach things. But, uh, you know, that would be my, my opinion on, on that one. Next one is from Stuart Rutley. He says, given our modern knowledge of body mechanics, do you think that some stances and moving through them should be revised and altered? Absolutely. You know, if there is a better way to do something, then we should adopt that better way of doing it. So one of the things that I always find quite surprising is that the cutter, the, the when done right, are very much in line, I think, with modern discoveries about, you know, body mechanics. Uh, the, the trouble is, of course, is lots of people do them wrong. Uh, or we develop bad habits, or we develop confusion, you see. So, But if modern science can say, look, you will generate more power moving in this way, or this is a more natural way to move, we should always do that, always adapt things. Uh, we, we want to make karate better. Uh, we don't serve the people who formulated this art by deliberately making it worse, by, by refusing to accept uh, new knowledge and new innovations. They never did that. 
You know, the, the one thing that's been traditional or consistent in karate is consistent evolution. Uh, so we should do that. So I agree with Stuart uh, completely. You know, if we find some information that can make something better and, and more effective, then we'd we, we, we be fools not to adopt it. So the final question in this section is from Andrew Meacham. He says, there are many ways to perform the Mawashiuki, depending on style. Which do I feel is the most correct and, and which applications are most practical? Uh, so for Moshiuki, for those that don't know, that's two-handed circular receipt. So wax on, wax off. You know what I mean? For those that are old enough to get the reference, right? And, and there are lots of different ways to do it. You even see different ways within the same style, depending on the cutter as well. In terms of its function, uh, while it's often taught as a like a block and a receiving technique, it can do that. Uh, I, I personally... Uh, teach it first and foremost as a way to cut through limbs. So as the enemy flinches, tries to protect himself, tries to block your shots, if the arm gets in the way, you use Mawashiyuki to strip the arm out of the way to gain control and open up lines to targets. So in terms of application, that's where we'd go with it first. Action beats reaction. We primarily use it as a way to strip limbs. That's a key thing with it. Although it can be used defensively, that's not the, the main main use of it. In terms of uh, which do I feel is the most correct, like there are little stylistic differences, but I think one key thing is that the secondary hand, so the primary hand swings across like a like a windscreen wiper, windshield wiper for our American friends, swings across where the other one comes uh, underneath. So the first one kind of roughly finds out where the arm is. Once it's made contact with it, the other one slides up the arm and makes secondary contact so we can gain uh, good control of the limb. Now, I think what's key is that the secondary arm must always come underneath the primary arm. So the primary arm swings across and finds it. The secondary arm comes underneath it, you know, or, or, or closer to the enemy than you are. And the reason for that is there's always more arm underneath. So if you can imagine a scenario where I'm doing um, Washiuki starting with my left hand and, and I've, I've hit my partner's right hand, but I bring the secondary hand uh, between my hand and myself. There's a chance it could skim into free uh, into free air. If I take it underneath my arm, so it's closer to my opponent, the secondary arm is closer to my opponent, there's always more arm underneath, which is the phrase I use. So uh, many different ways to perform it, largely stylistic. You even get different ways within the same style. Um, the key thing, I think, is that the secondary arm goes underneath. If you're doing that, that's the most efficient way to do it. In the 12th century, members of the Knights Templar secretly travelled to Japan to train with the Koga Ninja Clan. This combination of West meets East resulted in the most effective martial arts system ever developed. The Knights Templar produced a secret scroll detailing the inner workings of this method. For fear it would fall into the wrong hands, it was passed on to the ancestors of Grand Master Billy Bob McJenkinson for safekeeping. In these dangerous times, Grandmaster Billy Bob McJenkinson feels it is time for this method to be revealed to the public. In this unique 127-part home study DVD set, comes with free instructional booklet, you will learn devastating strikes, weapon skills, lethal mech cranks, never-before-seen ground fighting methods, the use of the infinity stick, also known as a hula hoop, the secret combat belly diet, secrets of invisibility, hand grenade defense, and more. Get a rank in the fighting system deemed too dangerous for the UFC. MMA is just a sport and hence prohibits the use of battle axes. Work through the materials in the comfort of your own home and submit video of your performance and a grading fee for $600 for 20th Q. 
to receive access to a PDF certificate you can print off to use to impress your friends. Bankrupt yourself to hold a downgrade in Templar Koga Billy Bob Rue and fear no man. The ultimate online home study course based on the secret scrolls of the McJenkinson clan. So we now have a very brief uh, weapon section. So the first one is from Ryan Brooks. He says, what do you feel is the role of Kabuto practice in practical martial arts training? While Filipino or Indonesian weapons arts, for example, may still have some practicality in the modern world, do you think the practice of Bosai, Tomfer, etc. have practical value aside for exploring extensions of unarmed principles? So, uh, no, I don't think uh, Budo, uh, Kabuto practice has any role uh, in, in, when it comes to uh, self-defense. Uh, and, be, and before people get upset by that, I don't think it needs to either. You know, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with learning the art for the art or learning because you want to be a competent warrior with weapons. You know, you want to learn how to fight with these things. But in the modern world, we don't walk around with bow, sire, tomfer. Now, I know people say, yeah, but having learnt the weapons, you can apply that to improvised weaponry. So if you know a bow, you could use a pool cue and, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, I think we'll practice with the pool cue. You know, practice with the improvised weaponry. Uh, rather than, you know, use the ancient stuff, how can you use your mobile phone as a weapon? How can you use your keys as a weapon? How can you use a pen as a weapon? You know, these are things that you can practice and train. Uh, why train with a Tomfa when you want to be using your mobile phone? You know, it, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. I still think there's a bad habit in the martial arts that, that they feel that the only valid thing that we do is self-protection and self-defense. So unless it relates to self-defense, it's useless. And we're so much better if we get away from that. There's nothing wrong with doing things because it's fun, because it's interesting, because uh, you enjoy uh, fighting with it. You know, if, if you want to get a stick and your friend wants to get a stick and you, you want to spar with bow, have at it and, and enjoy it for what it is. You know, but, but you're highly unlikely to meet another bow-wielding guy in self-protection. It's just not going to happen. So it would be a waste of training time from a self-protection perspective. But that doesn't mean it's a waste of time. So on my own thing with that is... I originally had zero interest in Kabuto, none. I, I did it, um, a few years of the, the samurai sword, um, Iaido, uh, because I was interested in swords at the time. So I, I, I did that and enjoyed that for what it was. But I never had any interest in learning bow or tomfer or sai, kama, nothing, nothing. In recent years, that started to shift. Uh, if, if I had the time... I'd love to learn some Bosai and Tomfa. I feel it's a big gap in my martial education that it's pretty much been you know, largely unarmed. I don't think I need to learn it in order to enhance my ability to defend myself at all. It's just that now, uh, if I had the time, uh, feeling that the self-defense side of things, you know, none of us are invulnerable, but I'd like to think I've got a fairly good handle on that. If I had a little bit more time, I'd love to learn some Bosai and Tomfa and Kama, just simply because of the enjoyment of learning a new skill for, for another element to my martial education. But I don't feel a need to tie that to uh, self-protection because I don't feel that there is a meaningful link there. So the other weapons question, because there only was two of them, was from Brian Preston, and he said, why do some karate styles incorporate weapons while others do not? Uh, he makes a point that uh, in Shotokan Kata, maybe these weapon skills hidden away in them, so that uh, the... Uh, Authorities can't tell that you're training uh, weapon skills, you know, um, but you put a weapon in the hand and instantly, you know, the, the locals have got those combative skills. So there's a couple of things with that. So the, the first thing is it's one of these widespread karate myths uh, uh, that uh, uh, karate was a peasant's art. 
and, and, and they learnt karate as a means to overthrow the samurai overlords. Now, first thing is, if you look at the history, these were not peasants learning it. Peasants were busy toiling the fields. Peasants didn't have the time or the money uh, to get decent martial arts instruction. If you look at pretty much all of the uh, martial artists, the karateka of the past, they were all uh, in high-status, high-paid jobs. They, they weren't peasants. Uh, the other one that, you know, the karate was a system to uh, use, the, you know, the unarmed by the samurais, and, and, and they wanted these weapon skills to, to fight the samurai. That's not true either. Uh, the weapons bans that, you know, it's so much is made of weren't total weapons bans. They were largely firearms. You know, they just banned firearms, uh, not, not weapons in its totality. So why some styles incorporate weapons is, well, just, you know, some deem it valuable and some don't. So one of my main karate instructors did do weapons, but he didn't really teach it, and I had no interest in learning it. So it's dropped out of my system just because I didn't want to do it. And my instructor wasn't that keen on teaching it, even though he himself had learned those, uh, some of those skills. So, so I think that's, that's one. You know, some people like it, some people don't, and that's why you find some do it and some don't. Uh, in terms of do the kata contain weapon skills, I, I, absolutely no. You know, I, I, I don't think so. I think that the kabuto kata contain the weapon skills and that there are there is there is a shotokan bow cutter by the way called matsukaze that um furukoshi's son design so um you know that's one that people can take a take a look at uh, so there are there are weapons forms specific weapons forms now of course some of them t style of motions are common so you could take the unarmed movements and apply uh, weapons to them. I think that can work, but that's very different from saying they were designed to be used with weapons. Uh, my own view is, is no. The Kabuto Kata are for weapons, and the Empty Hand Kata, Karate Kata, are for uh, for empty hands. And, and, I, and I don't think there was any attempt to obscure that to the, the authorities, because the history would tell us that you know the people practicing karate were highly educated people not oppressed peasants uh, and that the weapons ban wasn't a total weapons ban it was a, a, a firearms ban so by extension that would mean you'd have to see firearms movements in the cat room <laughs> uh, i think we can safely say that they're not there get ready for a roundhouse kick to your ear holes the freshest the deafest new album is in for the sake of the drill the dopest new tracks from Ian Abernethy, a.k.a. DJ Enigmatic Pragmatic. He's bringing you a tumble in from Cumberland, featuring such no-touch knockout hits as Into Dojo, The Gangster's View of Fate, Don't Call Me Sensei, Kato Rules Everything Around Me, Jeff Thomas Said Knock You Out, Bunkai State of Mind, don't be a whiny white belt. Go by for the sake of the drill. Now. So in this section, we'll look at the miscellaneous questions, the ones that didn't quite fit into the uh, arbitrary categories that I'd tried to structure this podcast in. Uh, so the first one, I'm going to leave anonymous, all right? But he'll know who he is. He, he's saying that uh, he belongs to a group where he knows he's been called names behind his back, uh, that they make changes to cutters without telling him he's excluded sometimes from uh, emails, you know, exchanges. He wants to know, would I leave a group like that? Or is it beneficial to stay in that group just because of the benefits the students may get from it? Uh, my, my own, like, 
philosophy of life generally is it's just too short to spend around people i don't want to be around you know i'm blessed in my life that i get to spend time with people who enjoy the same things i do and are positive people and that gets such a difference on on your mood and your outlook of life if you're around negative people it's just such a drain you know i've I've been there done that cannot be bothered with it anymore never in the karate i've been lucky that way you know generally speaking the, the people that i've associated with in the karate have always been good positive people but in life generally you know i've i've, I've been around people who, who are not fun people so you know why would you want to be around them you know they're not nice people they're duplicitous people so and and although you know you may feel that well if i'm a member of the group i get some benefits but you can get the same benefits from other groups without all the backstabbing and all the problems my own view is life's just too short you know if that's what's going on you know just leave you know go find uh, a, a better group, you know, and your students will, will be glad that you did too, right? If, if, if they have spared all that politics and you're not having to act as a, a shield for them that you can just turn up in the do- dojo and you enjoy what you do and they enjoy what you do and you've got none of that, like, animosity, you know, overt and covert going on, yeah, I just forget it. You know, and, and, and I, you know, that, that's it. For example, the, the group I belong to is uh, the, the, the BCA, WCA, BCKA, so World Combat Association, British Combat Association, British Combat Karate Association, which are just different wings of the same group. Um, but that, that was always a, um, a, a criteria. Anyone who was going to teach an instructor's course for those groups, it, it was never, you know, are they a great martial artist? The first question was, are, are they a nice guy? Is this a good person? And, and if they were, then they would teach. If they could be an incredible martial artist, but if they were bad guys, you know, um, again, not honest people, not good people, it was just, nope, you ain't teaching. You know, and, and that's why I think that group, you know, or this, that group of groups, if you like, just getting bigger all the time because we just don't stand for that. We just don't do the politics. We don't do that. You know, anyone who wants to be like that is quickly shown the door. We want people who want to support one another and have each other's backs and work together to achieve a common aims. You know, life's just too short for all that stuff. No time for it. And I would suggest that, you know, if, if, yeah, leave, you know what I mean? If that's the way things are going on and, and, and you, you can't change it, you know, it's not just one or two individuals that, you know, others are having problems with well as well. You know, sometimes that happens where it's just one or two key guys and if people gather together, you know, you can leave and leave that guy behind or those guys behind or whatever. But but if it's the group generally because that's the culture that's developed in the group, yeah, you're better off leaving it, I think. So the next question is from Kevin Cook. He says, if you could restart your training again from the beginning, uh, what things would you do differently? Uh, it's always a, like a strange one, that, because the mistakes you've made are ultimately things you've learnt from. So if you do away with the mistake, you lose the learning opportunity. So obviously you don't want to make the mistake, but you want the fact that you learnt from it. So it's a little bit difficult. But I, I think one key thing is uh, I went through a period where... Uh, because, you know, I, I, I love karate, and, and it's something I, I knew I always wanted to be good at. But there was a period where it was obsessive. So I was training hard and, and regularly, but it, it lost a bit of the joy. You know, it was always, you know, if, if I did something well, it was never well enough. 
And if I did something badly, it was a source of constant frustration, and I just couldn't get it off my mind, you see. So I could have done without that. In, in retrospect, if I'd realised, you know, all anyone can ever do is you have the best possible session you can have that day. And, and if you do that consistently, you get better, you know. So get in the dojo, do your thing, enjoy it as much as you can, learn what you can, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. Tick, that's another one done. I'll be back again tomorrow. Uh, that, that would have been more psychologically healthy because I went through a period in my teens and my 20s where it, it was obsessive training and, and, and that wasn't good you know it, it, it was less enjoyable than it could have been and when I was able to you know probably just part of the process of maturing really but when I was able to leave that behind you know training suddenly becomes fun and you, know, you progress at a greater rate so yeah that would be my thing to keep it fun all the time um, and I, I've often said if I could go back and give the young me any advice that would be it you know just chill out a bit <laughs> enjoy it more you know that would that would have been it I think uh, next question is from Heather Harris, and she says, uh, what's my favorite non-martial arts book? So here's the thing, I, I, I generally, I love reading. I've, I've always been a, um, a, a very active reader, love reading. But I've never been that great a fan of uh, fiction books. I've, I've always liked learning about topics. And the way I, I tend to work is, you know, I'll, I'll get interested in a, in a specific thing. Then I'll read one book, two books, three books, four books. And then, okay, I've got enough. And then I move on to the next ne next topic. So in terms of the favorite book at that time, depends on what I'm interested in at that time. You know, obviously martial arts is a consistent, but, you know, this, you know, I've, I read things on history, you know, or religion, philosophy, and you know, um, um, mythology, things like this. And I'll get really interested, and I'll read lots of books on it, and then I'll move on to something else. But I think my, my favourite non-martial arts book generally would be uh, A Catcher in the Rye. And the reason, I mean, one, it's a great book, right? You know, it's, it, but the, the reason I, I really like that book is I read it during the 1990s, uh, when it was, it was a really hot summer, even by British standards, you know, like, you know, it was a good summer. And at that summer, I was working as an electrician. I had saved up loads of my annual leave because the weather was good. I took a lot of that time off. Uh, at the time, uh, I was between homes, so I was, I was, I was effectively sleeping in a spare room uh, with, at a friend of mine. Uh, we're a really good friends, so that was a fun time. I enjoyed my time living with him. Uh, and then, uh, so anyway, during the day when he's at work, uh, what I would be doing is I'd be sitting out in the garden, enjoying the sun, reading A Catcher in the Rye. It was just a real uh, enjoyable book, not just because it was a good book, but it's the time and way in which I read it. You know, so I read it when I was in my twenties, uh, having uh, a good time with uh, um, Sheridan, a friend of mine, had you know such a laugh. He's got a great sense of humour. Uh, so the, that would be it. So my favourite non-martial arts book, not necessarily just for the book, but for all the memories it invokes as well would be uh, a catcher in the rye so the next question is from john brinder he says uh, many groups offer instructor training courses which usually end up in some sort of qualification are we in danger of having instructors teaching lots of watered down art in order to improve student retention yeah, absolutely are we you know it's a uh, it's a, a worrying trend you know everyone wants everything quick People want to be an instructor in a given system in a few weekend courses. You know, we've always had the charlatans. We've always had the guys who, you know, give you a black belt in three months and then tell you to open a club. You know, they're just looking to expand the club as quickly as possible. Generally, that's very fragile. It never really lasts, especially in this day and age of the internet. If you've got bad instructors teaching badly, people quickly come across something half decent and realize, yeah, I've been taught nonsense. I want to move on. So, so, you know, th that's always been around, but you do see, I've, I've seen, you know, 
people with previously good reputations give out black belts you know you do a couple of weekend seminars and they go oh you're a black belt now it's worrying it is worrying and that's all about ex- expanding the group as quickly as possible uh, so it, yeah it's definitely a problem we need to educate people that you know if someone hasn't got years of training in a specific system then they're, they're not an instructor in that system you know i mean th- that's the, w- the way it should be and that's not to say there are not legitimate instructor training courses because there are i mean sometimes you get skilled martial artists who are adding another string to the bow and they do an instructor training course to add a specific skill set to what they've already got that's that's legit but when you've got somebody kind of just going okay you know you've never done this art before you, you you've never stood in any elements of it let alone any specific ones and we're going to have you uh, uh, marked up as an instructor within like a few months or a few seminars or a few weekend courses yeah that's a problem it is a big problem next question is from uh, G- uh, greg linham he says do you think that if the first ufc never happened or mma never blew up the martial arts would still have moved in the direction it did with people looking to be proficient in all ranges etc uh, yes i do and, and the reason I, I believe that is because that was happening before the ufc so th- those in the uk you know we, we refer to it as the reality revolution where, you know, two of my instructors, you know, Jeff Thompson and Peter Constein started pushing, you know, real self-defense and what it required. And it was not long after that, that the UFC happened. And that kind of like, that was the kind of catalyst to things that were already happening. You know, I think it's the, the spread of the internet, you know, the, the ability for people to swap information, which has helped more so i think it would have moved in that direction but maybe not as quickly or as explosively the fact that mma has become mainstream it has definitely had a, a positive effect help get that message out but that message was there anyway and i think it would have won through eventually anyway the, the other thing is although mma on the whole i think has been very positive for the martial arts it, it, it has encouraged people to look at things functionally and to make sure they've got all ranges covered that's a positive but it has had some negatives as well so the first thing is because mma uh, as a um uh, as it's developed has shown the best ways to outfight fighters people look to mma as if it's the ultimate you know we have the ultimate self-defense solution now and and of course it's it, it's not that it's not self-defense it's a g- great because of the, the, the relatively few limitations it's a great way to develop good fighters good duelers but self-protection self-defense is, is a is a different topic and i think people get confused about that now as well um so so that's one negative thing the other negative thing is that a bit like boxing really in in the desire to sell tickets you need that theater around fights uh, and so inadvertently they reward that theater theater because they get paid more so if you create controversy you will do better overall and i get it as entertainment you've got to do that but but it's not the kind of behavior that we would want to see associated with martial arts when you know people are throwing things at buses and throwing water bottles at one another and, and, and stuff like that. You know, it's not, it's not the ideal behavior. I get it for the, the need to have the controversy to get people emotionally invested in the fight. So I'm not, I'm not fully criticizing it because, because I, I get that it's needed. You know, people want a narrative. They want a good guy and a bad guy. And, you know, they, they need to care about the result. And sometimes that controversy, whether real or fake, helps with that. You know, I, I get it, you know. But those kind of behaviors are problematic, especially from a self-defense point of view as well. If people go, oh, that's how martial artists behave, you know, they trash talk one another. Well, you trash talk the wrong person for self-defense and 
that causes problems, right? You get yourself into fights that you needn't have been in. Uh, you create witness perceptions where you can be the aggressor. You know, there's all kinds of inadvertent problems with that as well. So, so per- personally, you know, I think overall MMA has been a very positive thing for the martial arts generally. I think it would still move in that more holistic direction anyway because I, I, I was, I saw it starting to move that way. It probably wouldn't have moved as fast, but I think MMA has been a double-edged sword because people confuse still uh, fighting with the self-protection side of things. You know, so that's an issue, uh, and I also think some of the behaviour we've seen around the theatrics, the necessary theatrics, one could argue, uh, of, of the entertainment side of MMA becomes problematic when everyday members of the public start to behave that way in the real world. So, yeah, that would be my, my general thoughts on that. So the next question is from Peter Jones. He says, has MMA become a style in and of itself? Uh, that's a difficult one. I'd say yes and no. So, you know, if you think back to the early days of MMA, it was very clear what systems people were coming from. And, of course, people now fight to the rules so that they everybody becomes good strikers, good grapplers, good ground fighters, good wrestlers, because you need all of that to be, you know, you, you may excel in given areas, but you need a, a, a grounding in all of that. So people have realized that, so the training gets more and more similar. But having said that, because MMA is relatively free of restrictions, when compared to other combat systems, you get a lot of different approaches within it, a lot of people who fight in, in different ways. So I, I don't think it's become a style in itself in the way that like some traditional systems have. Um, and I think we're probably better thinking of MMA as a rule set. It's a, it's a set of rules uh, and a way of fighting within those rules. And, but I, I don't think that would constitute a, a style in, in, in the um, uh, traditional uh, sense. Next question is from uh, Ben G.J. Sneer, and he says, your thoughts on teaching children preemptive strikes and attacking anatomical weak points? Well, when you teach children, you've, you've not just got a responsibility to that child. Uh, you've also got a responsibility to all the other children that that child will interact with. So, you know, there's, there's a reason that we, we don't let children do certain things because they don't have the impulse control. I can't remember who said it, but there was one person saying, you know, if a toddler had the means, they would destroy the world, you know. And, and I think that would be fairly true. So... I think that preemptive strikes are ways of facilitating escape. You know, so it doesn't necessarily need to be a strike, but acting preemptively uh, can be very useful. And I think knowing certain weak points can be useful. But would you teach a child to punch somebody in the throat in order to, you know, escape? Well, most certainly not. So it, it depends on what you're specifically teaching and the context within you, uh, in which you're teaching it. You know, so I, I think teaching uh, teaching children preemption as part of self protection uh, is legit. It just needs to be taught correctly and responsibly. And I think teaching them uh, weak areas again that can be done. For, for the same reasons, even if it's, you know, don't ever hit anybody here unless it's really serious. So I remember my, my, my father, you know, when, when he was teaching me, you know, and we were playing the basics of fighting, he was, he was always, you know, this, he, he would teach me things like, you know, he, he can bite and he can stick fingers in eyes, but he would always say, that's if you're fighting someone my size. You know, I don't ever want to see you doing that against someone your own size. You know, it was, it was very clear that, you know, that the context in which it, it was taught. And, and, and I think, you know, so if we can do that, I think then, then we've no problem teaching those things, but it, we need to be taught in a socially responsible way. So the next question is from Ben Pethick. He said, if you were stranded on a desert island with lots of hostile ruffians trying to kill you, which martial artists, one living and one dead, would you have by your side to help you survive? Great question. Nah. So dead would have to be Miyuto Masashi. 
because uh, that guy obviously highly understood strategy, wasn't overly encumbered by notions of morality and fair play. <laughs> so I think he'd come up with some really effective ways in which we could deal with uh, these outnumbered hostile ruffians. So Masashi would be the one, uh, the dead guy. Uh, living, uh, it would be Peter Constantine, uh, one of my teachers. One is because, you know, Peter hits like a mule and he's an incredibly good fighter, but he's also got, uh, you know, military experience, so that's bound to come in handy. You know, this is, this is all, so that, that, that would be it, really. Yeah, I, I would uh, meet a Masashi. Or, yeah, would be the dead one and Peter Constantine uh, would be the, the living one if I could have them both I'd just sit back and let them get on with it <laughs> I'd tend the campfires while I went and wiped everyone else out so Adrian Havers asks uh, if you had a time machine and could visit Okinawa in the olden days who would you want to go back and train with the most and why uh, I think I'd be Itosu because Itosu was the guy who initiated the change from karate as a self-protection system to a form of exercise which then spread through the Okinawan school system. So I think I'd like to train with him to look you know, firsthand at his old school methods and then maybe to discuss with him what his vision was for the uh, the version he was trying to introduce to the schools and then maybe just to feed back to him, say, look, this is how it panned out and see if he was happy with the way that his karate spread and whether he had any concerns about you know the way that the chain of events that he set in motion had panned out so yeah be a tosu i think so alan pope asks uh, how do you see karate moving forwards into the future um, so that's first part of his question so i think uh, karate i think is in a very healthy state at the moment lots of great people out there on all fronts doing uh, lots of healthy things if you're into sport well you've got the olympics coming and how great is that if you're into the self-defense stuff there's more people shedding uh, sharing more information than there's ever been if you're into the health side of things again the, the, there's more people producing good content on that front so yeah i think karate is in a really healthy state and whichever direction you want to go with your karate i think you know the future's bright uh, he also asks, will I be uh, writing any new books, recording new DVDs, or will the app be the main platform for instruction? Uh, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> so uh, there's, I've got a couple of books that are half-written and have been for quite some time, so I need to find some time to finish those off at some point. Uh, in recent years, the travelling to teach has been where my focus has been, so therefore the books have fell down a little bit but, uh, on the back burner, but you know, I'll get them picked up. Uh, recording new DVDs, yeah, definitely going to be doing that. I've got some, you know, the throwing series has still been edited together, so th there's those will be coming out soon. And will the app be the main platform for information? Yeah, it will, because I love the app. Favourite way of sharing that video content, really. YouTube's great and all, but the app, because it's a, a subscription service, means I can justify spending more time on it. You know, I add like at least one, normally two videos to it a week. Uh, the, the, one of the common complaints in air quotes we get is people go, oh my word, there's just so much stuff, you know, I don't know how to get through it all. There's hundreds and hundreds of hours with it. Uh, feedback is good. People are enjoying it and, and, and finding it beneficial for their own training and teaching. Uh, I love the fact that we'd like, when you do a book or a DVD, once you've done it, it's finished. But the app is an ongoing project, so every week it gets better. You know, there's, there's more and more content to it. And the, the guys at Buddha Code, who I'm in a partnership with on that, I mean, they're great. Really love working with those guys. Um, you know, they're, they're always really helpful. Uh, you know, speak to them regularly. They ask me what I want to see, what changes I want. Uh, help me with, you know, any customer feedback I've got and everything. They're great. So, um, yeah, there'll be new books. Yeah, there'll be new DVDs. And in terms of sharing what I do, uh, the, the app has been for maybe the last year or so uh, and will continue to be so. Uh, the way that I primarily share information aside from in-person teaching, of course. That will always be number one. So the final question is from Lex uh, Zoklich. I hope I'm pronouncing your surname right there, Lex. 
Uh, so Le- Lex is asking about unity. He says, you know, would it be better if there was like a, a coming together of all the various federations and associations to ensure a uniform standard across the piece? And, and I have my reservations about that. In theory, it would be wonderful if we had one overarching group that everyone could belong to, that understood that karate was a broad church, that existed to serve the membership and what the membership wanted, and did the best array standards across the piece, uh, that would be wonderful. But, but it's not the way it tends to work. What, what, what tends to happen is once you get one group above all others, very quickly... They become quite dictatorial, uh, financially exploitative. Uh, it becomes all about feathering the nest for those at the top. You know, you just see this time and time and time again. The, the fact that there are many different organisations, where the advantage we have there is, that is that people can jump ship to the organisation that they believe best serves their needs. You've got these free associations rather than enforced uh, associations. So, for example, you know, if you're not happy with the group you're a member of, well, you leave and join another group. You know what I mean? If, if, you're, if you think the association you're affiliated to is not serving your students, you leave. You go somewhere else. But if there's only one show in town, the official overarching body for that, you, you can't do that. And if that body starts to deteriorate, you've got nowhere to go. You're trapped within it. So my, my own view is I would never want to see one o- uh, association over the top of everything. I, I think that would be massively problematic and, and wouldn't serve karate it, it would see us it would see enforced mediocrity at best and it would see all kinds of political pro- uh, problems you know guaranteed really now the price we have to pay for that because there isn't one uniform organization is that there is going to be varying standards and you know i think we've just got to go well who cares you know so not all downgrades are equal the downgrade of one group will not be the same as a downgrade as another group you know, i've said this for quite a few years now i think we need to get it Except it ourselves, and then start sharing this with the general public that downgrades are internal markers within a group. They are not cross, uh, you can't cross reference them. So a guy who's a first down in one group is a first down in that group. That, that, he, that does not mean he is the equivalent or better than or worse than the first down of any other group. You know, it, it's, you know, you can only judge them by the, their actual skill level and not the down rank they hold. So there are groups where you get downgrades very quickly. There are groups that you get them, you know, it takes a long time to get them. They're, they're internal markers only, but, but that we do have freedom. You know, you have freedom to move from group to group and, and, and therefore naturally the better associations get bigger and the worst associations get smaller. And, and I think that's the way it needs to be rather than trying to um, force everyone together. So we've got one overarching dictatorial group that, that's, that's always problematic, I think. And I think history is firmly on my side on that one as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found it interesting. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining me on this podcast. I hope you have a great Christmas or had a great Christmas, uh, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Uh, very grateful to everyone for the support during 2018 too, uh, particularly those who've got up to the seminars. It's always great to spend uh, floor time with people. There's nothing better than spending time with people who share your passion, who are enthusiastic about the same things that you are. Uh, yeah, so thanks to everyone for that. Also, thanks to everyone for your support of the Ian Abernethy uh, app. Uh, the app is 
one of my favourite projects. I really do enjoy adding to that every week. Uh, the amount of content that's on there is just mad. I don't believe it's possible for anyone to, to watch it all. So thanks to everyone uh, for your support and you know the community that's built up around that. Very grateful for it. Uh, yeah, I hope uh, 2019 is a great year for you. And uh, thanks very much for the support. And I'll be back in touch soon. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye.